14. Aurag to walk at too early on age may bend the thigh bones, causing the too familiar bow legs. These bones may also be bent by having children sit on benches and chairs which are too high for the feet to reach the floor, and which do not provide supports for the feet. Wholesome food, fresh air, sunlight, and exercise are also necessary to the proper development of the bones of children, where these natural conditions are lacking, as in the crowded districts of cities. Children often suffer from a disease known as rickets, on account of which their bones are unnaturally soft and easily bent. On account of the accumulation of mineral matter, the bones of elderly people become brittle and are easily broken, and from lack of vigor of the bone cells they heal slowly after such injuries occur. This makes the breaking of a bone by an aged person a serious matter. Old people should, as far as possible, avoid liabilities to falls, such as going rapidly up and down stairs or walking on icy sidewalks, and should use the utmost care in getting about. In old people also the cartilage between the bones softens, increasing the liability of getting misshaped. Special attention, therefore, should be given to erectness of form, and to such exercises as tend to preserve the natural shape of the body. Treatment of fractures. A fractured bone always requires the aid of a surgeon, and no time should be lost in securing his services. In the meantime the patient should be put in a comfortable position, and the broken limb supported above the rest of the body. Though the breaking of a bone is not, as a rule, a serious mishap, it is necessary that the very best skill be employed in setting it. Any failure to bring the ends of the broken bone into their normal relations permanently deforms the limb and interferes with its use. Dislocations and sprains. Dislocations, if they be of the larger joints also require the aid of the surgeon in their reduction and sometimes in their subsequent treatment. Simple dislocations of the finger joints, however, may be reduced by pulling the parts until the bones can be slipped into position. A sprain, which is an overstrained condition of the ligaments surrounding a joint, frequently requires very careful treatment. When the sprain is at all serious, a physician should be called, because of the limited supply of blood to the ligaments, they are slow to heal and the temptation to use the joint before it is fully recovered is always great. Massage aided to judiciously apply to a strained joint, by bringing about a more rapid change in the blood and the lymph, is beneficial both in relieving the pain, and in hastening recovery. Summary. The skeleton, or framework of the body, is a structure which is movable as a whole and in most of its parts. It preserves the form of the body, protects important organs, and supplies the mechanical devices, or machines upon which the muscles act in the production of motion. The skeleton is adapted to its purposes through the number and properties of the bones, and through the cartilage and connective tissue associated with the bones. The places where the different bones connect one with another are known as joints, and most of these admit of motion. The preservation of the natural form of the skeleton is necessary, both for its proper action and for the health of the body. Exercises. 1. State the main purpose of the skeleton. What is the necessity for so many bones in its construction? 2. How may the percent of animal and of mineral matter in a bone be determined? 3. What properties are given the bones by the animal matter? What by the mineral matter? 4. Locate the bone cells. What is their special function? 5. State the plan by which nourishment is supplied to the bone cells in different parts of the bone. 6. Give the uses of the periosteum. 7. State the purpose of the Haversian canals of the canaliculi. 8. Give functions of the spinal column. 9. Name the different materials used in the construction of a joint and the purpose served by each. 10. 
name for mechanical devices, or machines, found in the skeleton and state the purpose served by each. 11. Name one or more of the body machines not located in the skeleton. 12. Of what advantage is the peculiar shape of the lower jaw, of the ribs, of the bones of the pelvic girdle? 13. State the importance of preserving the natural form of the skeleton. How are unnatural curves produced in the spinal column? 14. How may slight deformities of the skeleton be corrected? 15. What different systems are employed in the body in the production of motion? What is the special function of each? Practical work to obtain clear ideas of the form and functions of the bones. A careful examination of a prepared and mounted skeleton is necessary. Many of the bones, however, may be located and their general form made out from the living body. Bones of the lower animals may also be studied to advantage. Experiments to show the composition of bone. 1. Examine a slender bone, like that in a chicken's leg. Note that it resists bending and is difficult to break. Note also that it is elastic that, when slightly bent, it will spring back. 2. Soak such a bone overnight in a mixture of one part hydrochloric acid and four parts water. Then ascertain by bending, stretching, and twisting what properties the bone has lost. The acid has dissolved out the mineral matter. 3. Burn a small piece of bone in a clear gas flame, or on a bed of coals, until it ceases to blaze and turns a white color. Can the bone now be bent or twisted? What properties has it lost and what retained? What substance has been removed from the bone by burning? Observation on the gross structure of bone. 1. Procure a long, dry bone. One that has lain out in the field until it has bleached will answer the purpose excellently. Test its hardness strength, and stiffness, saw it into a third of the distance from one end, and saw the shorter piece into lengthwise, compare the structure at different places, find rough elevations on the outside for the attachment of muscles, and small openings into the bone for the entrance of blood vessels and nerves, make drawings to represent the sections, 2. Procure a fresh bone from the butcher shop, note the difference between it and the dry bone, Examine the materials surrounding the sides and covering the ends of the bone. Saw through the enlarged portion at the end and examine the red marrow. Saw through the middle of the bone and observe the yellow marrow. To show the minute structure of the bone, prepare a section of bone for microscopic study as follows. With a jeweler's saw cut as thin a slice as possible. Place this upon a good-sized whetstone, not having too much grit, and keeping it wet rub it under the finger, or a piece of leather, until it is thin enough to let the light shine through. The section may then be washed and examined with the microscope. If the specimen is to be preserved for future study, it may be mounted in the usual way, but with hard balsam. Prepare and study both transverse and longitudinal sections. Making drawings, the sections should be prepared from bones that are thoroughly dry but which have not begun to decay. To show the structure of a joint, procure from a butcher the joint of some small animal hog or sheep. Cut it open and locate the cartilage synovial membrane, and ligaments. Observe the shape and surface of the rubbing parts and the strength of the ligaments. Chapter XV The muscular system as already stated. The skeleton, the nervous system, and the muscular system are concerned in the production of motion. The skeleton and the nervous system, however, serve other purposes in the body, while the muscular system is devoted exclusively to the production of motion. For this reason it is looked upon as the special motor system. The muscular tissue is the most abundant of all the tissues, forming about 41% of the weight of the body. Properties of muscles. The ability of muscular tissue to produce motion depends primarily upon two properties the property of irritability and the property of contractility.
Irritability is that property of a substance which enables it to respond to a stimulus, or to act when acted upon. Contractility is the property which enables the muscle when stimulated to draw up, thereby becoming shorter and thicker a condition called contraction, and when the stimulation ceases, to return to its former condition of relaxation. The property of contractility enables the muscles to produce motion. Irritability is a condition necessary to their control in the body. Kinds of muscular tissue. Three kinds of muscular tissue are found in the body. These are known as the striated, or striped, muscular tissue, the non-striated, or plain, muscular tissue, and the muscular tissue of the heart. These are made up of different kinds of muscle cells and act in different ways to cause motion. The striated muscular tissue far exceeds the others in amount and forms all those muscles that can be felt from the surface of the body. The non-striated muscle is found in the walls of the food canal, blood vessels, air passages, and other tubes of the body, while the muscular tissue of the heart is confined entirely to that organ. Striated muscle cells. The cells of the striated muscles are slender, thread-like structures, having an average length of 1-1-2 inches 35 millimeters and a diameter of about 1-400 of an inch 60 Greek small letter mu. Because of their great length they are called fibers, or fiber cells. They are marked by a number of dark, transverse bands, or stripes, called striations, 83 which seem to divide them into a number of sections, or discs figure 108. A thin sac-like covering, called the sarcolemma, surrounds the entire cell and just beneath this are a number of nuclei. 84 figure 108 figure 108 a striated muscle cell highly magnified, showing striations and nuclei. Attached to the cell is the termination of a nerve fiber. Within the sarcolum are minute fibrils and a semi-liquid substance, called the sarcoplasm. At each end the cell tapers to a point from which the sarcolum appears to continue as a fine thread, and this, by attaching itself to the enclosing sheath, holds the cell in place. Most of the muscle cells receive, at some portion of their length, the termination of a nerve fiber. This penetrates the sarcolum and spreads out upon a kind of disc, having several nuclei, known as the end plate. The muscle organ. We must distinguish between the term muscle as applied to the muscular tissue and the term as applied to a working group of muscular tissue, which is an organ. In the muscle, or muscle organ, is found a definite grouping of muscle fibers such as will enable a large number of them to act together in the production of the same movement. An examination of one of the striated muscles shows the individual fibers to lie parallel in small bundles, each bundle being surrounded by a thin layer of connective tissue. See practical work. These small bundles are bound into a larger ones by thicker sheaths and these in turn may be bound into bundles of still larger size figure 109. The sheaths surrounding the fiber bundles are connected with one another and also with the outer covering of the muscle. Known as figure 109 figure 109 diagram of a section of a muscle. Showing the perineseum and the bundles of fiber cells. Figure 110 figure 110 a muscle organ in position. The tendons connect at one end with the bones and at the other end with the fiber cells and perineseum. See text. The perineseum. The plan of the muscle organ is revealed through a study of the perineseum. This is not limited to the surface of the muscle, as the name suggests, but properly includes the sheaths that surround the bundles of fibers. Furthermore, the surface perineseum and that within the muscle are both continuous with the strong, white cords, called tendons, that connect the muscles with the bones. By uniting with the bone at one end and blending with the perineseum and fiber bundles at the other, the tendon forms a very secure attachment for the muscle. 
the perineum and the tendon are thus the means through which the fiber cells in any muscle organ are made to pull together upon the same part of the body figure 110. Purpose of striated muscles. The striated muscles, by their attachments to the bones, supply motion to all the mechanical devices, or machines, located in the skeleton. Through them the body is moved from place to place and all the external organs are supplied with such motion as they require, because of the attachment of the striated muscles to the skeleton, and their action upon it, they are called skeletal muscles, as most of them are under the control of the will, they are also called voluntary muscles, they are of special value in adapting the body to its surroundings, structure of the non-striated muscles. The cells of the non-striated muscles differ from those of the striated muscles in being decidedly spindle-shaped and in having but a single well-defined nucleus figure 111. Furthermore, they have no striations, and their connection with the nerve fibers is less marked. They are also much smaller than the striated cells, being less than one one-hundredth of an inch in length and one three-thousandth of an inch in diameter. In the formation of the non-striated muscles, the cells are attached to one another by a kind of muscle cement to form thin sheets or slender bundles. These differ from the striated muscles in several particulars. They are of a pale, whitish color, and they have no tendons. Instead of being attached to the bones, they usually form a distinct layer in the walls of small cavities or of tubes. Figure 111. Since they are controlled by the part of the nervous system which acts independently of the will, they are said to be involuntary. They contract and relax slowly. Figure 111 Figure 111 Non-striated muscle cells. A cross-section of small artery magnified. Showing 1 the layer of non-striated cells. B3 Non-striated cells highly magnified. Work of the non-striated muscles. The work of the non-striated muscles, both in purpose and in method, is radically different from that of the striated. They do not change the position of parts of the body, as do the striated muscles but they alter the size and shape of the parts which they surround. Their purpose, as a rule, is to move, or control the movement of, materials within cavities and tubes, and they do this by means of the pressure which they exert. Examples of their action have already been studied in the propulsion of the food through the elementary canal and in the regulation of the flow of blood through the arteries pages 159 and 49, while they do not contract so quickly, nor with such great force as the striated muscles. Their work is more closely related to the vital processes. Structure of the heart muscle. The cells of the heart combine the structure and properties of the striated and the non-striated muscle cells, and form an intermediate type between the two. They are cross-striped like the striated cells, and are nearly as wide, but are rather short. Figure 112. Each cell has a well-defined nucleus, but the sarcolum is absent. They are placed end-to-end to form fibers and many of the cells have branches by which they are united to the cells in neighboring fibers. In this way they interlace more or less with each other, but are also cemented together. They contract quickly and with great force, but are not under control of the will. Muscular tissue of this variety seems excellently adapted to the work of the heart. Figure 112 Figure 112 Muscle cells from the heart, highly magnified after Schaefer. The muscular stimulus, the inactive, or resting, condition of a muscle is that of relaxation, it does work through contracting, it becomes active, or contracts, only when it is being acted upon by some force outside of itself, and it relaxes again when this force is withdrawn, any kind of force which, by acting on muscles, causes them to contract, is called a muscular stimulus, electricity, chemicals of different kinds, 
and mechanical force may be so applied to the muscles as to cause them to contract. These are artificial stimuli. So far as known, muscles are stimulated naturally in but one way. This is through the nervous system. The nervous system supplies a stimulus called the nervous impulse, which reaches the muscles by the nerves, causing them to contract. By means of nervous impulses, all of the muscles both voluntary and involuntary are made to contract as the needs of the body for motion require. Energy transformation in the muscle. The muscle serves as a kind of engine, doing work by the transformation of potential into kinetic energy. Evidences of this are found in the changes that accompany contraction. Careful study shows that during any period of contraction oxygen and food materials are consumed. Waste products, such as carbon dioxide, are produced, and heat is liberated. Furthermore, the blood supply to the muscle is such that the materials for providing energy may be carried rapidly to it and the products of oxidation is rapidly removed. Blood vessels penetrate the muscles in all directions and the capillaries lie very near the individual cells figure 113. Provision is made also, through the nervous system, for increasing the blood supply when the muscle is at work. From these facts, as well as from the great force with which the muscle contracts, One must conclude that the muscle is a transformer of energy that within its protoplasm, chemical changes take place whereby the potential energy of oxygen and food is converted into the kinetic energy of motion. Figure 113 Figure 113 Capillaries of Muscles Plan of Using Muscular Force Two difficulties have to be overcome in the using of muscular force in the body. The first of these is due to the fact that the muscles exert their force only when they contract. They can pull but not push. Hence. In order to bring about the opposing movements 85 of the body, each muscle must work against some force that produces a result directly opposite to that which the muscle produces. Some of the muscles those of breathing work against the elasticity of certain parts of the body, others those that hold the body in an upright position, to some extent against gravity, and others the non-striated muscle in arteries, against pressure. But in most cases, muscles work against muscles. Figure 114 Figure 114 The muscle pair that operates the forearm. For names of these muscles, see Figure 119. The striated, or skeletal, muscles are nearly all arranged after the last name plan. As a rule a pair of muscles is so placed, with reference to a joint, that one moves the part in one direction, and the other moves it in the opposite direction, from the kinds of motion which the various muscle pairs produce. They are classified as follows. One. Flexors and extensors. The flexor muscles bend and the extensors straighten joints. Figure 114. 2. Adductors and adductors. The adductors draw the limbs into positions parallel with the axis of the body and the adductors draw them away. 3. Rotators two kinds. The rotators are attached about pivot joints and bring about twisting movements. 4. Radiating and sphincter muscles. The radiating muscles open and the sphincter muscles close the natural openings of the body such as the mouth. The pupil should locate examples of the different kinds of muscle pairs in his own body. Exchange of muscular force for motion. The second difficulty to be overcome in the use of muscular force in the body is due to the fact that the muscles contract through short distances, while it is necessary for most of them to move portions of the body through long distances. It may be easily shown that the longest muscles of the body do not shorten more than 3 or 4 inches during contraction to bring about the required movements of the body, which in some instances amount to 4 or 5 feet, requires that a large proportion of the muscular force be exchanged for motion. The machines of the skeleton, while providing for motion in definite directions, 
also provide the means whereby strong forces, acting through short distances, are made to produce movements of less force, through long distances, the mechanical device employed for this purpose is known as the lever, the lever may be described as a stiff bar which turns about a fixed point of support, called the fulcrum, the force applied to the bar to make it turn is called the power, and that which is lifted or moved is termed the weight, the weight, the power, and the fulcrum may occupy different positions along the bar and this gives rise to the three kinds of levers, known as levers of the first class, the second class, and the third class figure 115, in levers of the first class the fulcrum occupies a position somewhere between the power and the weight, in the second class the weight is between the fulcrum and the power, in the third class the power is between the fulcrum and the weight, figure 115 figure 115 classes of levers, I2 levers of first class showing fulcrums in different positions, II, lever of second class, III, lever of third class, F fulcrum, P power, W weight, A power arm, B weight arm, application to the body, in the body the bones serve as levers, the turning points, or fulcrums, are found at the joints, the muscles supply the power, and parts of the body, or things to be lifted, serve as weights. For these levers to increase the motion of the muscles, it is necessary that the muscles be attached to the bones near the joints, and that the parts to be moved be located at some distance from the joints. In other words the muscle power arm must be shorter than the body weight arm. 86 Examining Figure 116 It is seen that the distances moved by the power and weight vary as their respective distances from the fulcrum. That is to say, if the weight is twice as far from the fulcrum as the power, it will move through twice the distance, and if three times as far, through three times the distance, thus the muscles, by acting through short distances on the short arms of levers, are able to move portions of the body located on the long arms through long distances, can all three classes of levers be used in this way in the body, figure 116 figure 116 motion producing levers, Diagrams show relative distances moved by the power and weight in levers having the power nearer the fulcrum than is the weight. F fulcrum, PP, power, WW, weight. Classes of levers found in the body. Practically all of the levers of the body belong either to the first class or the third class. In both of these the muscle power can be applied to the short arm of the lever, thereby moving the body weight through a longer distance than the muscle contracts figure 116 in the levers of the second class, however, the weight occupies this position, being situated between the power and fulcrum figure 117, the weight, therefore, cannot move farther than the power in this lever, it must always move a shorter distance, while such a lever is of great advantage in lifting heavy weights outside of the body, it cannot be used for increasing the motion of the muscles, for this reason no well-defined levers of the second class are present in the body, 87 figure 117 figure 117 weightlifting levers, diagrams show relative distances moved by the power and weight in levers having the weight nearer the fulcrum than is the power, F fulcrum, PP, power, WW, weight, figure 118 figure 118 diagram of the foot lever, F fulcrum at ankle joint, W body weight expressed as pressure against the earth, while the muscle power acts through the distance ab, the fulcrum support body is forced through the distance phase. Loss of muscular force. Using a small spring balance for measuring the power, a light stick for a lever, and a small piece of metal for a weight, and arranging these to represent some lever of the body as the forearm, 
it is easily shown that the gain in motion causes a corresponding loss in muscular power. See practical work. If, for example, the balance is attached 2 inches from the fulcrum and the weight 12 inches, the pull on the balance is found to be 6 times greater than the weight that is being lifted. If other positions are tried, it is found that the power exerted in each case is as many times greater than the weight as the weight arm is times longer than the power arm. Applying this principle to the levers of the body, it is seen that the gain in motion is at the expense of muscular force, or, as we say, muscular force is exchanged for motion. This exchange is greatly to the advantage of the body, for while the ability to lift heavy weights is important, the ability to move portions of the body rapidly and through long distances is much more to be desired. Important muscles. There are about 500 separate muscles in the body. These vary in size, shape, and plan of attachment, to suit their special work. Some of those that are prominent enough to be felt at the surface are as follows, of the head, the temporal, in the temple, and the masseter, in the cheek. These muscles are attached to the lower jaw and are the chief muscles of mastication, of the neck, the sternomastoids, which pass between the mastoid processes, back of the ears, and the upper end of the sternum. They assist in turning the head and may be felt at the sides of the neck figure 119, of the upper arm, the biceps on the front side, the triceps behind, and the deltoid at the upper part of the arm beyond the projection of the shoulder. Figure 119 Figure 119 Back and front views of important muscles, of the forearm, the flexors of the fingers, on the front side, and the extensors of the fingers, on the back of the forearm Figure 119, of the hand, the adductor pollicis between the thumb and the palm, of the trunk, the pectoralis major, between the upper front part of the thorax and the shoulder, the trapezes, between the back of the shoulders and the spine, the rectus abdominis passing over the abdomen from above downward, and the erector spinae, found in the small of the back, of the hips, the gluten's maximus, fastened between the lower back part of the hips and the upper part of the femur, of the upper part of the leg, the rectus femoris, the large muscle on the front of the leg which connects at the lower end with the knee pan, of the lower leg, the tibialis aniquus on the front side, exterior to the tibia, and the gastrocnemius, the large muscle in the calf of the leg, this is the largest muscle of the body, and is connected with the heel bone by the tendon of Achilles figure 119. The use of these muscles island in most instances, easily determined by observing the results of their contraction. Hygiene of the muscles The hygiene of the muscles is almost expressed by the one word exercise. It is a matter of everyday knowledge that the muscles are developed and strengthened by use, and that they become weak, soft, and flabby by disuse. The effects of exercise are, however, not limited to the large muscles attached to the skeleton, but are apparent also upon the involuntary muscles, whose work is so closely related to the vital processes. While it is true that exercise cannot be applied directly to the involuntary muscles, it is also true that exercise of the voluntary muscles causes a greater activity on the part of those that are involuntary and is indirectly a means of exercising them. Exercise and health, in addition to its effects upon the muscles themselves, Exercise is recognized as one of the most fundamental factors in the preservation of the health. Practically every process of the body is stimulated and the body as a whole invigorated by exercise properly taken. On the other hand, a lack of exercise has an effect upon the entire body somewhat similar to that observed upon a single muscle. It becomes weak, lacks energy, and in many instances actually loses weight when exercise is omitted. 
This shows exercise to supply an actual need and to be in harmony with the nature and plan of the body. How exercise benefits the body. In accounting for the healthful effects of exercise, it must be borne in mind that the body is essentially a motion-producing structure. Furthermore, its plan is such that the movements of its different parts aid indirectly the vital processes. The student will recall instances of such aid, as, for example, the assistance rendered by muscular contractions in the circulation of the blood and lymph, due to the valves in veins and lymph vessels, and the assistance rendered by abdominal movements in the propulsion of materials through the food canal, a fact not as yet brought out, however, is that exercise stimulates nutritive changes in the cells, thereby imparting to them new vigor and vitality, while this effect of exercise cannot be fully accounted for. Two conditions that undoubtedly influence it are the following, 1. Exercise causes the blood to circulate more rapidly. 2. Exercise increases the movement of the lymph through the lymph vessels. The increase in the flow of the blood and the lymph causes changes to take place more rapidly in the liquids around the cells, thereby increasing the supply of food and oxygen, and hastening the removal of waste. One should plan for exercise, since exercise is demanded by the nature and plan of the body. To neglect it is a serious matter. People do not purposely omit exercise, but from lack of time or from its interference with the daily routine of duties, the needed amount is frequently not taken. Especially is this true of students and others who follow sedentary occupations. People of this class should plan for exercise as they plan for the other great needs of the body food, sleep, clothing, etc. It is only by making a sufficient amount of muscular work or play a regular part of the daily program that the needs of the body for exercise are adequately supplied. Amount and kind of exercise. The amount of exercise required varies greatly with different individuals, and definite recommendations cannot be made. For each individual also th.